who's the perfect founder? There's really no such thing, but a founder really stands out to me when they can somehow balance this visionary part of their story and their pitch. This is what the $100 million a year business looks like. They have magnetism to them around. You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Katie Shia. She's based in New York and she's the founding partner at Divergent Capital. Prior to starting Divergent Capital, she was an active angel investor for many years and she was also in many marketing roles. Let's talk to Katie and find out what she focuses on, how she makes investment decisions, and how she chooses startups for her VC firm. Katie, welcome to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. I've spent my entire career in the startup ecosystem, worn a ton of different hats from bootstrap founder, early marketing executive at venture-backed companies, as you mentioned, an angel investor, now venture investor. Yeah, we want to talk about your experiences. Let's start with your childhood. Where did you grow up? I know you grew up in Queens, but how was your experience and how did it shape your outlook? Yeah, I grew up on the Queens Long Island border. It's been a really entrepreneurial household. My dad was actually a firefighter, FDNY, for 20 years, but he had this small business on the side. It was signs and awnings when I was born. He had three employees, kind of up to 40 employees over the years. And my mom was amazing, stay at home mom of four kids, but she always had a side hustle, ran a daycare center, tutoring, home organizing. And outside of my immediate family, almost all of my aunts and uncles were small business owners as well. Catering companies and construction companies and renovation companies, for better or for worse, that are really young age, I just thought that's what people did. (laughs) I thought people started businesses. And that was obviously as an adult, what I was going to do. It was super impactful to just at a very, very young age, know what a purchase order was because it was getting talked about at the dinner table or working for my dad. Summers in between high school and talking to customers and getting experience that I probably would not have gotten at such an early age. I went to NYU undergrad, studied finance marketing, specialized in entrepreneurship, I actually started a company in my dorm room <laughs> my senior year, <laughs> but started my career building a manufacturing business. And we did not raise money. I didn't know what venture capital was at the time. We bootstrapped it to profitability. My business partner, Susie Lev, a brilliant designer, and I ran everything, sales and marketing. We sold to Neiman Marcus and Macy's and Bloomingdale's and Bed Bath & Beyond and retailers all over the world. We factored against our receivables to grow. We never raised outside capital. We got to profitability. We actually, we sold the business in 2013. That was my first foray into entrepreneurship, but without any sexy tech component to it. (laughs) It was really like a a B2B manufacturing company, but a lot of blood, sweat and tears. We ran the business for four years before we sold it. Just gives me an incredible founder empathy that still sticks with me to this day now in venture. From there, I jumped to the tech side. I learned during my time running manufacturing businesses just I would get so frustrated by how archaic some of the processes were, right? We'd be getting purchase orders for multi-hundreds of thousands of dollars via fax machine in 2012. And I was dealing with EDI warehousing systems, felt like they were built in the 1960s. I became increasingly interested in like technology, solving some of the problems that I myself was having as a business owner. 
My investing story really starts in 2014 after we sold the business. Is that when you became an angel investor and you started investing? Personally? Yeah, so 2014, yeah, was when I made my first investment. And it was very small. <laughs> my first angel investment was a company called Bomba Socks, which is absolutely phenomenal. Dave Heath is still to this day one of the best founder CEOs that I've ever worked with. And I loved it. I was very small checks, but I loved being able to talk to founders, breakfast, lunch, after work, and not just help them with capital, but share all the lessons and tribulations that I had learned as a founder of everything I had done wrong. And so after we sold the business, that's really when I transitioned more to operating at venture-backed companies. So you grew up in an entrepreneurial household. The idea of starting a business was always in the air and you lived through that dream during college. You mentioned something interesting that most companies start illegally in dorms or in garages where they're not supposed to without a business license. We don't talk about it much, but it's interesting that you mentioned that you had that stint while you were in college. You brought that back eventually as an angel investor. You began to support many founders and you had a really fun experience working with entrepreneurs directly. How did all that experience prepare you and when did you decide that, okay, I want to start my own venture fund? And why did you do that? Much, much later. <laughs> we sold the business in 2013. I spent 2013 to... 2018, operating at venture-backed companies, writing some small angel checks, but it was very much not the day job. The day job was running sales and marketing teams at venture-backed companies. My sweet spot became that zero to 30 million in annual revenue stage. A couple of successes, one epic failure, <laughs> learned a ton operating venture-backed startups that probably gave me more and more conviction, both on my instincts of what separates good from great, what can go wrong, what can go right. And so I didn't uh, officially start venture investing until about four years ago. I had run growth marketing at a retail tech company in New York called Order Groove, like very early days to the Series B. I then joined a company called Homejoy, which was a home services marketplace. They raised $40 million from tier one funds and imploded fabulously when I was the general manager of New York, which I do like to share now, but I was so upset at the time. It was my first resume blemish. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I worked for a company that went out of business. I thought that that was going to be a huge stain on my track record. And ironically enough, the older I get, the more everyone's like, wait a second, you were at Homejoy? That's the most interesting thing about you. What happened there? What were the learnings or the lessons? I was a general manager of New York and ran the P&L of the tri-state area. Then I ran a growth consultancy for a couple of years. I was a fractional CMO, worked with some incredible companies. Aircall is, is a recent unicorn. Everything was an IoT enterprise software company. Negotiatus was a procurement platform. And it really wasn't until about four years ago that I was recruited by a small fund in New York called Kairos, an organization I helped co-found in college. It was more of a, a young founder community, society that transitioned to a venture fund over the years. I was fortunate enough where you know, I'd worked with the founders, you know, Ankur, Alex, Ryan. They had known me for almost a decade. They, we had stayed friends. They had seen my angel investment track record. They knew things were going really well. And they brought me on. That was really my first experience of like, wait a second, you can talk to founders all day and work with founders all day and like have this be a career and get paid to do it. I was literally hooked from that. I just was like, this is 100% what I want to do for the rest of my life. That's a bit more detail on the transition from founder operator to investor. This is very interesting. Thank you for sharing your journey. How is Divergent Capital different from other VC firms? 
What's the philosophy? What's the mission? It's a great question. We spent months and months and months <laughs> asking ourselves like all the philosophical questions around does the world need another venture fund? There's like 800 venture funds raising right now or something crazy. For us, it really boiled down to a few things. I spent my whole life thinking about businesses from the growth and revenue side of the house. My partner, Lucy, a machine learning scientist turned investor. I was raised by entrepreneurs. She was raised by scientists and engineers. Very kind of complementary skill set to mine. She really wears more of that CTO technology science hat. Lucy is more institutionally trained. She was at Graycroft and then she was at a, a deep tech fund in Silicon Valley called Levin Capital, where I came in more of the angel operator route. So complementary in so many ways. But a few years ago, we noticed that something was starting to change about the bifurcation of our two worlds. For example, Lucy would meet the founders of a robotics company, but instead of doing the safe, deep tech business model of robotics as service, the founders would say, we actually want to own the robotic cells and sell directly into OEMs, the Honda, SpaceX, Bentleys of the world. And Lucy would call me and say, how does this work? Who is the customer? What is the buyer persona? How does the sales cycle look? How do they think about ROI, average contract values, renewals? I would give her my opinion. You know, she was like, that was super helpful. On the flip side, I was starting to see, for example, a consumer healthcare company that had a big thesis on personalization. And the core of the technology for that thesis was a very complicated machine learning algorithm. So properly underwrite, I would call Lucy and she'd say, hey, these are the red flags. Ask these seven questions. Check out these two competitors. There was a one plus one equals 10 dynamic to the partnership. Add to that we were seeing these companies so early, pre-product, pre-revenue. Because we're both founder operators, we have no problem going that early. Lucy can underwrite tech, I can underwrite go-to-market. We were starting to see a gap in the market, especially for these types of founders, in our opinion, trying to go out and do the bravest thing, right? They would take on technology risk and go-to-market risk. A good example we like to point to is like the Teslas of the world. Tesla, obviously at the core, is an innovative technology company, but they also took a go-to-market risk and said, we're going to sell directly to consumers. A lot of early investors were like, no, sorry, we buy cars in parking lots. We don't buy cars direct to consumer. And I think they took two risks and both of those risks paid off. Depends on what the market is doing today, but they're like a $600 billion company. We were talking to our peers. We were getting excited about these founders, these companies, talking to our peers at larger funds. And they're like, yeah, these founders do look exceptional, but I now have a billion dollar fund. I need to deploy three to $5 million into a company to make my portfolio construction model work. So I'll just wait to see what happens to this company, right? I'll invest at the seed, I'll invest at the A. And so Lucy and I just got more and more conviction that there was this white space for the true pre-seed round for us that usually looks like the first million or $1.5 million into the business, particularly for science-heavy or tech-heavy founders, there's a gap in the market. We created an LLC to really pressure test this thesis. This was probably two plus years ago now. We invested in five companies, pre-product, pre-revenue, and they're all doing really well. We got super lucky. We are working with amazing founders. And to your point, why launch another fund? It was actually our founders that really pushed us over the edge. On the regular, they were saying, you, know, you guys understand our business the best, both on the tech side and the go-to-market side. You did the most diligence. We want you to lead or co-lead. We did not have the capital to do that personally. They were like, you guys have a really unique partnership. That was really what pushed us. Our founders or in a large way, our customers. We have founder customers, we have LP customers, but they're at least half of our customer base, if you think about it that way. They were telling us that we had a really special product. So yeah, we are a new pre-seed fund based in New York. We're looking to back 
early, early doesn't scare us. Pre-product, pre-revenue is fine. We did our first close in March and off, off to the races. That's incredible. So you and your partner came together with very different backgrounds, very different styles of thinking, and that has become a huge strength for the firm. And you developed the thesis for the firm, and now you focus on very, very early stage, scary early stage startups. When you meet entrepreneurs, what do you ask them? What do you look for? Lucy and I are looking for founders obsessed with the problem that they are solving. They have thought about it from every angle, if not years for decades, they're either the customer or as a consumer, or they've experienced the problem firsthand as a business professional. And on top of that obsession, we're looking for some unique perspective on what the founder thinks is missing from the market and why. In a dream scenario, that's backed up with customer validation. Hey, I've talked to a hundred potential customers. These were the main insights I gleaned from the conversation. We definitely have a bit of a bias towards founders that think a bit more from a bottoms up perspective than a top down perspective. We're looking for founders that are really obsessed with the customer and the product. And that's how they think about what the future growth trajectory of the business looks like versus, oh, it's a $100 billion market. If I get 1% of it, this is what my ARR looks like. There's so many nuances of these conversations. For Lucy and I, there's definitely a gravitation towards like, if the founder isn't the customer of the business, they know that customer inside and outside. And they, they put in the work to validate some of the early hypotheses that they've had. And in some cases, we actually love when they're like, actually, we had this hypothesis about the market. And then we went and talked to 200 customers and we realized we're wrong. This is where we landed. They are entrenched in who their customer is and what they want. We don't tend to gravitate towards a cool kid has been trained in how to create FOMO and a venture around. It's out there right now. It's very hard to avoid it. And we get it. We've been founders. You you do what you got to do. We have absolutely no judgments. But for us, we really gravitate more towards authentic, humble, knows what they're good at, knows what they're not good at, has a way to actively thinking about how to fill the gaps of what they're not good at from co-founders or early hires. We've invested in 50 plus companies between the two of us. We found that that founder type, at least for us, that's the founder type that for the long haul can continue to attract incredible capital partners. They can attract and retain incredible talent. They tend to lead more with authenticity and vulnerability than fear. I like the way you describe obsession, like intense passion. That is common thread that I've seen with many entrepreneurs I've worked with. Yeah. The relentlessly resourceful entrepreneur who will not stop Paul Graham coined the word relentlessly resourceful. And that comes from this place of uh, obsession. Another thing that's hard to articulate perfectly, but I'll try my best. Who's the perfect founder? There's really no such thing. But a founder really stands out to me when they can somehow balance this visionary part of their story and their pitch. And they're like, this is what the $100 million a year business looks like. They have magnetism to them. There's this balance between the nitty gritty of what are the unit economics of my customer? What does an ACV look like? How about growing from month to month to quarter to quarter alongside that visionary, high level, super inspirational, super charismatic. It's really rare to find that in one person. But for us, that's been quote unquote, a a founder personality type that's also treated us really well. They can almost flip back and forth almost seamlessly between visionary and hyper-focused on KPIs and testing and being honest about themselves, driving a very KPI culture and orientation from the start of the business. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You're going into the second level of details on what you're looking for. What do some entrepreneurs do that make it easy for you to get there? 
Are there things that certain entrepreneurs do to prepare ahead of the meeting? How do they present the story that makes it easy for you to understand the business? I love starting with the founder motivation story. We have such a profound respect for what founders are doing. Even just calling it deals in, in venture rubs us the wrong way a little bit. These are dreams and families putting income on the line. What founders are doing every day is just truly so brave. We're really looking to hear a founding story or an origin story that speaks to the, you're going to do this for 10 plus years. If all goes to plan, you are going to create hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of jobs, billions, multi-billion dollars in enterprise value. It's going to be awesome, but it's also going to be super, super hard. When really articulating why you first thought about this business idea, why you've become increasingly obsessed with it, why there's nothing else in the world you can do except for this, and why you are absolutely the best person to do it. Those four things should get packaged in that intro. But very tactically, let's just say you have a 30-minute introduction call. I wouldn't spend more than five minutes on the background. Sometimes the mistake people make, especially at the early stage of a company when there's not so much to show about the actual company themselves, they over-index on their past. They want to bring up as many awards and job promotions and big logos that they've worked for. That makes sense to try to de-risk it. But I think keep that pretty concise because you do want to hold the majority of the meeting to not just your past, but what this business is and what you're trying to do with it. Obviously, touch on where the business is now. Anything you can do to de-risk interest or demand or traction, you should absolutely talk about that. If you need to raise money because you need to build a technology product, like totally get it. But is there anything you can do to hack together an MVP and get some type of interest, amazing if it's an LOI, right? From some type of customer to actually say, hey, I've pressure tested this and these types of customers were interested. They said they'd pay $500 a month for it. They need me to deliver on XYZ in order to turn this LOI into an actual contract. And basically try to do as much as you can to de-risk that there is demand to solve this problem. For us, this is speculative, of course, but really important is if you're talking to venture investors, you should not be looking to build a lifestyle business. There needs to be a clear thought on how this becomes a $100 million a year business pretty quickly. When we say pretty quickly, four, five, six years, which I acknowledge growing up in a small business household, how insane that sounds, but that is really what you're talking about. And it doesn't really make sense to raise venture and dilute yourself over multiple fundraising rounds if you're not really striving for that billion dollar plus exit. So at least touching on what does this company look like at 100 million in revenue? Where has the defensibility come in? Where does the moat come in? When you think about exit opportunities, if it's not IPO, who are the buyers out there that will pay billions of dollars for this company and why? If you structure the conversation around those three pillars, you cover the bases of what most early investors need to, to understand. They need to understand the founder and the motivation, the market, where the product is today, and then the venture outcome that they could be underwriting. You mentioned something very interesting. A lot of sincere founders treat the first round of fundraising like a job interview and they start talking about their past. That is actually far less important. The more important part of the conversation is the future. What are you building? How is it going to be useful for customers? What have you achieved in traction, which gives you strong conviction? That's a typical thing that happens with the founders, especially if they're not experienced and if they're not coached to present to investors. So thanks for highlighting that. It is so important what you've done in the past because 
there's really no better prediction of future success than past success. The point I'm trying to make is do whatever you can to very powerfully and concisely deliver that part, right? Where it's three to five minutes versus 20 to 30. Yeah, makes sense. Can you give an example of a startup that has worked really well and you're very proud of how the outcome has turned out? I'm so proud of so many of my companies. I'm also a mom of, of two and this may not resonate with everybody, but I actually think there's something very maternal about investing, especially at such an early stage. You really, in a way, get to back these companies at infancy and you grow up next to them. There's a lot of like, powerful synergies between like parenting and <laughs> startup investing. Yeah. Let's talk more about that. That's fantastic. So you think of your startups as your own babies. I mean, I struggle with saying this because it could sound condescending. I don't mean that at all. Most of my founders are much more impressive than myself. But from a guiding, shepherding, a partnership, there are parallels, especially when you think about what the average fund cycle looks like these days, which is 10 to 17 years. You really are talking about parallel to infancy to almost adulthood. So yes, the word proud really resonates because that is truly how I feel for so many of my founders. I'll give one example. It's a company in Austin called Self. Founder is James Garvey. James is really one of the first institutional investments I ever made. I went down to Austin and I met him live. And what Self does, if you think about the financial system in the US today, a lot of people that have no credit score or a crappy credit score, at some point, they want a credit card, right? So they'll walk into a Bank of America, they'll walk into a Capital One, they'll say, hey, I want an unsecured credit card. And the bank will say, no, you can't have an unsecured credit card. You can have a secured credit card, but you need to put $2,500 down to secure that credit card. Most people in the country do not have more than $500 in emergency savings and are living paycheck to paycheck. So that usually is a deal breaker for this person or for this family. So what self enables this type of customer to do is to basically set up a savings plan where they can contribute to their self account $50 a month, $100 a month, $250 a month, whatever their budget allows them to do. And then self reports to the credit bureaus that the customer is engaging in positive financial behavior of saving money. They're doing incredibly well, over a million customers now, just a couple of years after we invested. If you think about what this market looks like as far as no credit or low credit, it's 100 million people in the US that basically could use self and benefit from it. And they have basically one one hundredth of the market now. I love this story. Nobody knows how well this company is doing, naturally, because James is truly an incredible founder and operator. He just heads down. He's a builder. He doesn't care about TechCrunch headlines. He is obsessed with his employees and he's obsessed with his customers. He's grown in a heads down way to get at a corn track. To this day, even though they are multiple fundraising stages past where, where we first invested at the seed, he still sends a weekly KPI report on Fridays. These are the most impressive reports I have ever seen in, in my career. It goes back to what I mentioned earlier. He's a visionary. He's incredibly mission-driven. He wanted to solve this problem for 100 million Americans that deserve access to learning how to have better financial habits, to having savings for the first time after a year of putting money into their self-account, to having a better credit score, and basically working with people that no other financial institution wanted to work with. Now he's created these incredibly high-value customers that trust self with their money. And like he's basically now he's becoming like the bank. Let's have self give them their first credit card or eventually have self help them get a car loan or mortgage. There's so many places this company could go. For me, it's a perfect example of a mission-driven founder who has just been heads down building an incredible company 
for all of the right reasons, I believe going to create multi-billions of enterprise value as a result of that. I see the story of self is a story of quiet success. It's fantastic to hear that story. And I see the sense of pride in you, that parental instinct kicks in when you see your portfolio company doing really well. What happens when some of these companies don't do well? Oh, yeah. That's part of what you sign up for as, as an investor. Without naming names, I certainly have a couple of examples of those. And probably one of the proudest moments in my career so far is one of my early angel investments. Absolutely. Young founder, incredible. I will absolutely invest in whatever he does next. <laughs> Just was too early on the market. He's going after SMBs. It's really hard to get that right. Didn't figure it out on the timeline they needed to, but cash ran out. But along the way, the founder still sent the most immaculate monthly updates, was over transparent the whole way. I sent him a note when the, he decided to formally shut down the company. And basically the high level was, I know you feel like this is the end of the world right now, but it's not. <laughs> you are an incredible founder. If you're signing up for a lifetime of entrepreneurship, you are going to have zeros. You're going to have failures. It's an inevitable part of the journey. One of the best phone calls I ever got. He called me after he read that email and he was just like, honestly, no one else sent me. And this is the crappiest feeling in the world. Thanks for just like normalizing a little bit. So again, it happens. Something that founders have to remember, especially if they're going after venture, you probably feel like you let so many people down and you disappointed your investors. Of course, a zero is not the outcome that anybody was hoping for, but any professional investor, there's no reason to not handle that gracefully. It, it happens. And as I said, I would invest in this founder again. The next time he starts a business, you have to reframe it more positively. But it's hard. It's hard in a dark moment of crap. I really wanted this thing to work and it didn't. Yeah. When you're attempting to build a business that generates $100 million in revenue in the next four to seven years, it's a very, very risky endeavor. And the chances of failures are quite high, much higher than building a lifestyle business. I want to switch to the next part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? I'll totally own the bias of this, but I'll actually mention a, a for-profit business, but it's serving nonprofits. And again, full disclosure, this is my husband's company. So I'm doing a little bit of a plug here, but truly is how I would answer this question. My husband is the founder of a company called Gives, G-I-V-Z. What he and his team have built is this incredible platform that enables retailers and brands to replace discounts with donations. So instead of, hey, buy these shoes and get $30 off, which hurts AOV, hurts profit margin, hurts brand for retailers and brands, it enables them to say to their customers, hey, buy these shoes for $100 and we'll give you $30 in gifts cash and you can donate that gives cash to any charity of your choice. Instead of the brand saying, hey, we want to support a breast cancer nonprofit, which is amazing, you actually give that control and that choice back to the customer and the shopper to let them choose the charity of their choice. He's, you know, he's now working with you know, Betterment, NFL, H&M, dozens, maybe now hundreds of Shopify stores, Shopify brands to help them get more dollars to charity in an innovative and innovative way. There's been hundreds of thousands of dollars donated to charities at this point. If I had to say where my heart lies in, in the charitable giving space, it's on the proud wife partner side of the house. 
I see entrepreneurship runs in your family and gives. This is my fault. When I met my husband, I was the crazy entrepreneur. He was the super stable investment banker. And I brought him over to the dark side. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, babe, we were supposed to take turns. Somebody was supposed to have a stable income and health insurance while the other person did the high risk, high reward thing. But the global pandemic, we're like, what? Let's just go big or go home. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing authentic stories from your own startup experiences and your investment experiences. I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.